Sunday, 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 right here on twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. It's the Plex, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific and on into red light. We have the worst news in the week that no one else will cover. The Plex has it all. Conspiracy, right-wing nut jobs, Christian extremism, and Madison Star Moon. Tune in every Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media and find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com. I don't know what they're smoking over there at Princeton. The focus on ridicule. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their presses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. I've got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt, but to me that doesn't matter because my skin and my gender and my orientation are the best things to have if you live in this nation. I recommend it highly. a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I got all the luck I need Shit's gonna work out for me Cause I'm a straight white male in America I got all the luck I need Hey everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show live every Wednesday, usually at 7pm Pacific, but tonight we started at 8 you can find this podcast on all your favorite podcatchers. If it's your first time listening, maybe listen till the end and then decide if you are um, interested in following. Uh, you can find me on Grinder. You can also find me at Dave at port87.social on the Mastodon Fediverse. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at EplexM. Buy some stuff in our store. That's Eplex.store. And uh, I don't know, if you really, really like what's going on here, go ahead and uh, sign up for Patreon, patreon.com slash Echoplex. I don't know if you're going to want to do that, though, after what we're doing here. Um, so HK is unavailable out on adventures, uh, but I do believe we'll have HK here in the studio over the weekend, probably for the Sunday show, but maybe for Conspiracy Bingo. Unsure. He's uh, traveling to the Bay Area. So we'll see what we can do about that. Anyway, we're watching um, the end of the future from uh, 13 hours ago, and this is one Mr. Peter Thiel. <laughs> at Stanford Graduate School of Business with all these sponsors that you should not give money to. My name is Russell Berman. I'm on the faculty at Stanford. And uh, I'm uh, um, 
I've been asked to uh, introduce Peter. It's a privilege to introduce Peter Thiel. No, it's not. A privilege, but also a considerable challenge to introduce someone as well known as Peter, a leading entrepreneur with a high public and political profile. He's surely familiar to very many of you. PayPal, Palantir, Facebook, Founders Fund. Suffice it to say that Peter Thiel is one of the leaders of the private sector in the United States today. In another era, one might have said a captain of industry. I wish the academic world would have more, more dialogue with the private sector. Born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1967, he moved with his family to Ohio, then to South Africa, and then Southwest Africa, and then to California. He graduated valedictorian near here from San Mateo High School in 1985 and proceeded to Stanford where he majored in philosophy. That was the era of the controversy over the Western culture curriculum in response to which Peter co-founded the conservative student newspaper, the Stanford, Stanford Review, which still thrives. And you heard from the current editor, Mimi St. John. Mimi St. John, I'm proud to say, an advisee of mine, has. I'd be remiss also in omitting another aspect of Peter's Stanford trajectory, his encounters with the late René Girard, then a member of the departments of French and comparative literature, and Girard's accounts of religion, competition, and scapegoating, in my sense, uh, my, uh, my point of view, a big piece of what goes on in cancel culture events has to do with that logic of scapegoating. Add to Stanford's, uh, to Peter's profile, his attending School of Law, where he received his degree in 1992 before launching his storied career in technology, entrepreneurship, politics, and the public sphere. And shutting down Gawker because he was mad at them. Let me end with a quotation that would frame Peter's work from a student. I've been fortunate to be able to teach several seminars with Peter where we've had to limit enrollment and ask for students to apply for admission. Here's what one student wrote. I can't wait for the opportunity to interact with and learn from Peter Thiel. I admire Mr. Thiel for helping found the modern financial payment system with PayPal and for supporting and inspiring hundreds of entrepreneurs through the Founders Fund and the Thiel Scholarship. As someone interested in deep tech, Palantir has always fascinated me for its use of AI techniques on massive amounts of... Palantir is terrifying. I admire Mr. Thiel's integrity to stand Just by... absolutely fucking terrifying. I believe that this course will add unparalleled breadth to my Stanford education. That's the student said, and I'm sure that Peter will not disappoint us in his comments today. Peter Thiel. Russell, thank, thank you so much. It's always hard to... Uh, hard to live up to such a flattering introduction. Uh, I'm going to try to cover a lot of different, somewhat disjointed ideas today and then try to make it interactive and make it... You're going to make up a bunch of weird shit about technology like you did in the video we watched last week? The question I always like to start and frame is, what is the antonym of diversity? And uh, the placeholder answer I would give the, the, for an antonym for diversity, the antonym of diversity, is university. And, um, and like, what the fuck? Come on, dude. Did you hear the people like laughing at that? Oh, the antonym of diversity is university. And we should, um, and you know, and in some ways, what I what I gather, we're we're trying to come to terms with are all these ways that the university, as a place where we search for truth, where there's a certain amount of freedom, civility, uh, you know, a certain canon, is uh, is is being threatened by this sort of amorphous thing that's somehow uh, the anti-university, that is uh, 
um, you know, the postmodern multiversity that is maybe, you know, it's somehow in some parts nihilistic and some parts relativistic. I just want to like ask, and I, you, you don't get a chance to do this, but like when they, st- they start talking like this, it's like, what, what is postmodernism? Could you just tell me in a couple sentences what you mean when you say postmodernism? In some parts totalitarian, and it probably would take, you know, a more time than I have to unpack all of those paradoxes. But I, and then of course it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the problem of the university in the larger context of the questions of classical liberalism, and which you know seems to have be failing and, and in, in trouble in a lot of different ways, and, and that uh, one, can, one should also think about. You know, I've I've been involved in these uh, in these campus wars, culture wars debates for something like thirty-five years. We, we well, that's inappropriate because you graduated college quite some time ago. I'm not involved in any kind of fucking on-campus anything. Because I'm not involved in the university. I'm not faculty and I'm not a student. I don't I don't work in the administration in any way. We started the Stanford and I'll just recount one 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 story from thirty-five or so years ago. Uh, around the time we started the Stanford Review in nineteen eighty-seven, uh, the, the live issue was the uh, debate about uh, Western culture, the freshman core curriculum program. Uh, and it was going to be sort of phased out. Uh, the 88-89 school year was the first year where um, the first of the new experimental culture ideas and values was the first uh, the pro- program to replace Western culture. It's framed as multicultural. And uh, I thought we should do an expose on, on this sort of the first class. Um, and, uh, and it was sort of, you know, t- a tendentious Marxist professor. It was not really about non-Western cultures. It was all sort of these various anti-Western writers of one sort or another. And so I went to the Stanford book. But yeah, like if you were like if you book. were if the west was colonizing your land and like taking your resources, taking advantage of and abusing the people where you live, people in your community, your writing will be anti-western cuz you don't really like what the fuck is going on. Books to, tr- and of course, you know, I was sort of man with a hammer, tries to find a nail everywhere, and was just trying to find the, the most tendentious things that were, you know, um, and they, they all were on, on different dimensions. But then I finally stumbled on one book that was just the perfect book that encapsulated everything that was preposterous about it. it was uh, I Rigoberta Menchu, um, and it was a set of interviews with uh, uh, this sort of uh, Guatemalan peasant Indian woman who had been oppressed in every vector of oppression. It was like a it was like a perfect pastiche. It was, uh, you know, she was oppressed as poor, and as, as um, there was a racial war, and there was a war, and she was an orphan, and um, and on and on down the line. And and it was, and you know, and then you have these sort of chapters. You know, Rigoberta renounces marriage and motherhood. Rigoberta makes plans for the May Day parade. So it has sort of a somewhat, you know, communist undercurrent. The May Day uh, parade. Everybody, yo, communism is when May Day. And, um, and as so many of these uh, debates, they, they, you know, the, the Western culture debate was somehow very important. It was on one level about, a, about this freshman course at, this, at one you know, elite university, Stanford. But then, you know, it was in some sense, it was a, a debate about our whole culture. And so there, it sort of kicked up all these bigger things. And, uh, you know, as a sort of 20-year-old senior, I managed to convince the editors of the Wall Street Journal to, to reprint uh, some, some of these excerpts and uh, did, a, did a long... Long, long excerpt on this Europe and the Americas class. Um, when, when Dinesh D'Souza wrote his book on illiberal education in 1991, the, uh, the oh, yikes. chapter was entitled Travels with Rigoberta. So you know, this was sort of got this iconic uh, um, framing. And then, uh, and then fast forward to the uh, 
fall of 1992, I'm, I'm clerking for a judge in Atlanta, I'm driving to the office in the morning, have the radio on, and, uh, and it's, uh, well, you know, there's, uh, there's uh, um, a new, uh, someone's been selected for the Nobel Peace Prize, no one's ever heard of this woman, it's Rigoberta Menchu. And <clears throat> there's always this legal concept of the difference between proximate causation, which is like I punch you or something, versus but-for causation. I was not the proximate cause of her getting the Nobel Peace Prize, but I, I, I was a but-for cause. But for me, she would uh, not have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize. And sort what do you of mean? I fell off my eyes at that point. I realized I was, you know... What do you mean? I thought that I was, you know, fighting in some sort of cosmic struggle and, you know, the forces of good... He's people. like, I got some lady on another I, continent I who I've like, never met the Nobel really Peace Prize. Was I was some two-bit actor in a left-wing psychodrama where I completed her victimization. The one group she had not been victimized by were, you know, white... Republican conservatives in the United States. I completed her victimization and uh, guaranteed her her Nobel Peace Prize. There's a whole postmortem to the story where it's um, uh, apparently much of the book was too good to be true. It was sort of semi-fictionalized. Uh, there was an attempt to get the Nobel Prize rescinded, but uh, you know they can what? never sort of uh, revisit these things, and uh, and so it's still uh, it's still quite disputed. But you know I think so many of these debates have this kind of quality. There's there's a way that um, you know. Uh, you can sort of, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. The arguments are, uh, are super powerful on our side. Um, it is like screaming into a hurricane. Why has this guy, okay, if the arguments on his side are super powerful and he's a person of note who's able to speak at Stanford, why isn't he like on a stage somewhere eventually like with a moderator with somebody who like doesn't agree with him about this stuff? Like, I don't understand. He's like, oh, we can, we, we have facts and logic on our side, but all these people, they never want to talk to anybody from the left, especially not anybody who's like academic or, you know, has a lot of published papers or even like um, lefty talking heads they're terrified of too. So like, why, what does he mean that all the arguments are on our side? I never say that. Like what a wild thing to say that, oh, you know, actually the thing we believe, it just has all the right answers. Like what a wild thing to believe about yourself and your beliefs. It, it often does not matter. You know, we have, uh, we have, um, and there sort of is always this worry that uh, we are somehow, you know, uh, those of us who are conservative, libertarian, classical liberals are just somehow fighting the long defeat. And, uh, and, uh, and that, that is, that is, that's sort of the vibe. Well, yeah, the, when they say classical liberal, they mean like what was liberal a couple hundred years ago during the Enlightenment. And yeah, you know, time marches on, baby. Like, what's, what a liberal believes now is, different than what a liberal believed even 50 years ago look at things like gay marriage and even there were probably people who called themselves liberals 50 or 80 years ago who didn't believe in interracial marriage they're just liberal on other issues times change and by calling yourself a classical liberal you're just saying i believe in and i think i think you're saying you believe in like an outdated version of liberalism it's going on and and, and that's fine uh, with but don't act like classical liberal you're the real liberal and so i want to so instead Rather than sort of go through a whole set of these sort of semi-pornographic stories, which I could entertain you with. No, no, don't tell us. Don't long. don't read any of them books with the Fabio on the cover. That is that would be the most terrifying. He reads like '80s romance novels. I, I wanted to try a somewhat different approach, and um, and I, I I think it's always important not to sort of strawman our opponents, not to take the most ridiculous. Um, version of it and make fun of it. We should always try to steal man people to try to understand the arguments. Like, I hate this thing too. I, what do you mean steal? Like, 
if somebody has a bad argument and you go and you go into the the a discussion with somebody, uh, maybe they also like have like the premise is bad, but they also have a bad argument. Why would you then feed them back a good argument for the thing they're saying? If you're trying to win in the fucking battle of ideas, why would I just go in and be like, well, a better version of your argument would be this. And I'm going to talk about that. Well, no, because now you've just given that person a better version of their bad argument. Don't do that. <laughs> as as uh, best as they are possible. I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, it's a little bit complicated, but what I want to do is I want to give you the best argument against the best argument against the best argument against the best argument against classical liberalism against Wait, what? Um, how many how many layers deep are you there? And uh, so four four steel man arguments. And uh, the, um, if you counted it, there are four. So if you do, you know, a double negative. Anybody above. shocked this guy's friends with Eric Weinstein? Positive. <laughs> a quadruple the way this guy talks, fuck, man. So, uh, the, the four best arguments add up to a sort of argument for classical liberalism. But uh, we're going to let me let me. And, and this is sort of um, the way I've come to think of um you know what what the real nerve of, of so many of these debates is and how we should how we should think about it um, the you know let me let me start by framing if you if you um, if you talked in the during the western culture debates in the 1980s at stanford if you talked to the university president donald kennedy or you know the senior leadership at stanford he's like i'm going to steel man the argument by going back to 1980 and talking about what a person I perceive to be a liberal believed in 1980. Like what? That's not how, could you at least like, could you at least pretend to steal man an argument from the last five years, man? I went to complain. Um, you know, there were, I mean, there was definitely, there were always some radical, crazy people who, who said crazy things, but, uh, the, the I think you're one of those people sort of technocratic, you know, Shakespeare doesn't matter. The humanities aren't that important. Uh, we have the sciences. We're making enormous progress in the sciences. We're building a, you know, particle accelerator, Slack, et cetera, et cetera. We have, uh, you, have you know, you have all this sort of cutting edge scientific research. And, uh, that, that sort of fundamentally is what the university is about. That's what shows it's on track. That shows what, what it is valuable. And, uh, and there is sort of some way that we have to always ask this question about, you know, the, the sciences and uh, the technologies, how they are, how they are doing. And the, the version of the question that I have come to ask over the last 15 years um, about, you know, um, is the, the universal question is about the progress of all these things. How fast are science and technology as a whole? Oh, we watched him on the, the it, I put it out as a bonus actually on a Saturday. Uh, we watched him talk about this last week. And me and HK did a pretty good job, I think, of taking apart what he was saying about how we aren't making any progress because he like his only example was like the central processing unit of a computer. And he didn't talk about networking. He didn't talk about wireless networking. He didn't talk about like if more efficient vehicles, not not just electric cars, but more efficient internal combustion vehicles, too. He didn't talk like we brought up so many things that it advanced so dramatically just in the last 20 years that it, you know, just to get hung up on the specific item that you, you can get your hands on the central processing unit of a computer is kind of silly progressing is the sort of propaganda the stem propaganda accurate that uh we have just sort of exponentiating progress runaway progress things are getting sort of um you know it's just dizzying how fast things are improving well is it you know, so that it's not like one bar it's like a bunch of different bars like they're technology and science aren't one thing 
maybe one area is kind of stalled out, right? Because the for whatever reason, maybe physics for whatever reason is stalled out. But then there's advances in chemistry and biochemistry. And then maybe in a five years, biochemistry stalls out because they like had a big discovery or whatever. And then now physics, they're having new discoveries in physics. It's like all these different bars that are, they're speeding up, slowing down, stopping. And they're like, it's not just one bar. That's like, this is science. How fast is it going? That's like a very stupid way to think about it. Uh, is it perhaps quite the opposite? And, uh, and so, um, and, and so if, if, if one could show that, the science and technology areas are actually pretty weak, that the so-called crown jewels of STEM are not actually delivering the goods. This strikes me as a decisive crushing uh, blow. It's, it's, it's like, a, yeah. Um, but now who's busy arguing his own position? Is he arguing a steel man of someone else's position now? And I mean, I've been paying attention. I think we've all been, I mean, I've talked over him a little bit, but I think we've been paying attention. And I'm not sure where he, how many... How many layers deep on his steel manning of a steel man of a steel man of a steel man or what the fuck ever? How many layers deep is he even right now? You know, there is just nothing, nothing left at all. And, uh, and this is the idea that I've explored in sort of a variety of formats over the last uh, 15, 15 years. Uh, there's, there's sort of a, um, it's, it's very, let me say, it is very hard to evaluate this stuff in general because uh, one of the other problems of the postmodern university is that it's extremely compartmentalized, it's extremely specialized, and you're supposed to only be able to comment on these things after half a lifetime of study. I mean, no, you're, no, 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 and you're not, like, I, I talk about things outside of my, any academic um, study I've ever done. It's just like knowing when, like, knowing when to defer to other experts is important, actually. Ever narrower sets of guardians guarding themselves, to use the sort of corrupt platonic metaphor. So you, you have the string theory people telling us how wonderful string theory people are and how everybody else just has bad math genes and can't talk about it. We have the, uh, the cancer researchers promising us. I think most people who are studying string theory don't talk about other people that way. I don't think you get very far in any organization if you're just like, oh, everybody's an idiot because they're not a string theorist. This is that crap Eric talks about when he talk Eric Weinstein talks about when he talks about uh, his own theory of everything. And he's like, oh, the string theory people are there. They just think they have all the answers because they don't believe what I'm telling them. And it's like, well, I'm not even a physicist and I don't believe that Eric unified physics on the back of a napkin in his spare time all by himself while he was also working for Peter Thiel's capital fucking venture. Get out of here. Cure cancer in five years, which they've been doing for the last 50 we have um, you know, on and on in all these sort of hyper, hyper specialized areas. And, um, and then the question is, <clears throat> you know, how much, how much progress is actually happening? The, um, the sort of indirect intuitions I have on where it seems very, very slowed are things like, um, if, if, you, if, you, if you look at things like um, the, the economy, the, the standards of living among younger people, the younger generation doesn't seem to be doing better than their parents. But that isn't a problem of how many fucking transistors you can fit on a processor. This isn't a science and technology problem. Yes, science and technology enables you to live a better life. Uh, the refrigerator, indoor plumbing, all these things are like modern, like not modern marvels, just marvels of science. So they do improve your quality of life. Those are also those things were also only available to whoever the fuck could afford them, especially when they first came out. Most people didn't just because the refrigerator was marketed to people doesn't mean everybody had one.
like the same thing. Well, just when a flat screen TVs came out, you had friends that had them and friends that didn't just because either a, some of your friends could afford it and some couldn't, or maybe they were same socioeconomic status, but one of your friends would rather spend their money going on a rock climbing vacation than buying a TV. Like, and, but that's not even a standard of living thing. So maybe the TV is the wrong example, but the idea that like that, I guess it looks like the millennials might be the first generation, maybe Gen X actually, that aren't going to be better off than their parents. That's not a science question. This, this is sort of very odd in a sort of context of, of, of massive generalized progress. There is, uh, there's sort of a question, how big are the breakthroughs that are really, really happening? There's the definition of technology. We say technology is the thing that is changing. And, and in, let's say, the 1960s, technology meant computers, but also rockets and supersonic aviation and the green revolution in agriculture and underwater cities and new medicines. It, it underwater cities? Where the fuck? What do you mean underwater cities? Like what? One of those things was not like the other. I don't think people in the 60s were building underwater cities, were they? Today, it just means information technology. And I think that's kind of a tell that uh, we have a narrow cone of progress around the world of bits. You know, computers, internet, mobile internet. It's generated some great companies, um, but it's not quite been enough to take our civilization to the next level. We had a tax. But like, what does he mean by to the next level? Like that's an unattainable, you can just say that whatever technology that we have right now ha isn't taking civilization to the next level. And then if you never define what the next level is, then it, then it, you never get to the next level. We're never going to get there. Anybody it's unless Peter Thiel invents it himself. He probably thinks PayPal was the last big invention. If you asked him tagline on my, uh, my venture capital site, you know, they promised us flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. Not an anti-Twitter argument, not an argument against Twitter as a company. It can, it can work as a company. It can work, you know, 8,000 people. I think it's going to be better. But we actually, it's with science and technology and engineering people who decided that giving everybody a flying car would be a disaster, right? Would be a disaster. <laughs> Somebody's car malfunctions over my house. And then now the car is in my house via the roof flying cars are actually a terrible idea half after elon's done today but uh <laughs> even even those four thousand people can just still just go to the office and smoke pot all day and earn decent paychecks so it works on that level it doesn't quite work on the level was everybody were four thousand people sitting at the twitter office just smoking weed all day that sounds pretty based i don't think that they were but that sounds incredibly based of taking our civilization to the next level uh, when I was, I think that the, these things were not that obvious in, 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 in the past. When I was at Stanford in 89, in, in retrospect, the only subject matter you were supposed to study was computer science. That's what really worked. It wasn't even an engineering field. It was sort of a, you know, I always think whenever... There were, there science, were wait, no, 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 he's science, just wrong. Science. There was software engineering in 1989. Because he, he, like some of the weirdos he was hanging around with probably were like, oh, the only thing that's worthwhile to do is computer science. That's what he thought everybody thought. And that's, that's stupid. Quotes and when this is like supposed to be one of the smartest people in the world. And so far, like the, the, the things that he's said, are, that he's said are true or kind of obvious. And the things, the, the claims that he've made, he's made that are not obvious. They seem stupid. Sort of like that. It's for the people who are not very good at electrical engineering. And they sort of flunked out into computer science, even though that turned out to be the one thing that worked. All the engineering fields did not work. I think electrical mm -hmm. engineering sort of worked for maybe another decade after I was class of 89. Electrical um, engineering sort of worked for another decade after 89. So in 1999, electrical engineering just stopped doing amazing things.
Like, think of, like, just what kind of graphics card you could have gotten for your computer in 1989. And now think about what kind of graphics card you can get. There's a lot of electrical engineering that goes into making a graphics card. Or a car. Think about the electronics in your car now versus, like, 1989. Um, certainly mechanical engineering. Chemical or 1999. Yeah, all of these were terrible things. We lived in a world where there was nothing you could do in the world of atoms. By the 80s, it was already clear you should not go into nuclear engineering, aero-astro engineering, um, and we are just not allowed to do stuff in, in the world of atoms. It's, it, is, it is massively, massively slowed. And I think this is sort of the, this is sort of the, uh, this is sort of one kind of a, a framing I would give, that uh, we've had this um, incredible stagnation for the last 50 years, and then we have unbelievable amounts of propaganda. This is not true. And that, but the, I, I just reject the notion that the technolo technology as, a, as an idea or as a field of study or as an endeavor has stalled in the last 50 years. Somebody, if somebody woke, went to sleep 50 years ago and then woke up tomorrow morning, they would be terrified. <laughs> right? The world would not make sense to them at all. Um. I'll, I'll do one, one other sort of thought experiment on, you know, why the question of technological progress, however, however hard it might be, um, can't be avoided. Because, um, and let's, I'll, I'll do this one more as a thought experiment. If you, um, <clears throat> if you want to sort of solve our macroeconomic problems in the United States, you could solve every problem in our society if you got to 4% GDP growth. You'd grow, grow your way out of the deficits. Wait, what? Um, you'd have enough growth for everybody to do better. And how do you get to 4% GDP growth? Well, um, you, could do, um, you could do something like, um, um, one, one version would be, uh, you could change, get rid of all the environmental rules, all the immigration Whoa! rules. You could get rid of all these rules where you would never get elected. And you probably have too much cancerous growth, but you know there's certain ways you could do it. Wait, what, wait a minute! Getting rid of all the environmental rules and the immigration regulation, you end up with cancerous growth. I don't think he's implying that the cancerous growth comes from getting rid of all the environmental regulations. I think he might be, you know, maybe saying that the uh, cancerous growth comes from that other thing he mentioned. Just a guess, though. Feasible. And uh, the other way, I'll sort of do this as a, as a thought experiment, would be um, you appoint a commission on accelerating technological change. And um, but, but what the fuck is your venture capital firm then, if, that's, if not a commission on accelerating technological change? I'm not talking about Teal Capital, his little boutique firm. I'm talking about Founders Fund, the big one. What is he, what is, what is his field of endeavor, if not a giant sort of, think tank or whatever about trying to accelerate the progress of technology via investing in business. Um, it would, um, it would try to measure how fast the technological change has been happening. Um, and, um, you know, you'd have some, um, you know, some crazy techno utopian person, probably from Silicon Valley. Uh, you, you put them on the commission. Why? And uh, they would what, like, what are they? Why would some crazy techno utopian person, his words, not mine, why would they be on a commission to try to get exactly 4% GDP growth? <laughs> like, come on, what the fuck? What the fuck is this guy talking about? The result that, yeah, it looked like we had 2% growth 
and 2% inflation, but really we have 4% growth and 0% inflation because the qualitative technological improvements are greater Wait, than they look. What? And uh, if you could just lie about technological progress, you could save trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, I, I don't go into all the details. This is basically what happened under the Clinton administration in the 1990s. With is the it? No, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Under the Clinton administration in the 1990s was actually the last time that technology kind of took off and it brought the working class with them. Not the entire way. The working class was like being decimated by all the, the manufacturing jobs going overseas. But in the places where there was this tech boom, uh, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, New York, to some extent. Even Austin, Texas at that time, to some extent, Atlanta, Georgia was a big tech hub. It actually brought the working class with it to some extent. Not like now. Hedonic adjustments, and that was a key thing to balancing the budget. As a libertarian, I, I'm actually quite sympathetic to this because I want the welfare state to be dialed back. And so if you exaggerate, yeah, at least the bubble progress, took some, took some, uh, this is the way took to some, uh, working class people I, up with it. I don't like, uh, when the bubble like popped, it's not, when the bubble popped, it's not like the electrician, <clears throat> the electricians who wired up all the buildings to, you know, here in Silicon Valley along, mostly along North first street, actually, it's not like they lost all their money. They already got paid. Right. So it didn't take out the, <clears throat> the, the, the small amount of wealth that was made for the working class. Uh, they just, it was harder for them to find jobs after that, but at least it didn't take them out. The, 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 what happened after that with what we call web 2.0, it just didn't bring anybody with them, right? It did not bring the working class with them at all because there, nothing needed to be built. Nothing physical needed to be built. All the lines were laid. All the buildings were already there. And I think we should try to figure out, uh, we should try to figure out the, the, the truth of these things. And, uh, and probably, you know, if, if we say that, uh, you know, the flatness of the new iPhone um, is such a large hedonic adjustment that grandma should be happy to eat cat food. There's probably something about that that's wrong. And I'm, there's and, probably something about that that's wrong. But also in his analysis of tech in the last 50 years, he just leaves the iPhone or we'll say we'll call it a we'll call it a computer phone. That's a better way to talk about them, right? They're like mi miniature computers that happen to have a phone in them. He just leaves that out of his assessment about what, about how quickly technology is moving around. Think about showing somebody from 50 years ago a modern, a modern phone that you have in your pocket. I don't even have a new phone. I have a Galaxy S9. It would blow the mind of somebody from 50 years ago. They're like, what do you mean you just have a thing in your pocket and you can find the answer to questions? And these sorts of questions cannot be avoided. So the, the question of generalized technological progress cannot be avoided, go into a lot more detail, but, uh, but it has, for, for a whole set of reasons, slowed down. So that's sort of uh, the, um, the basic counter-argument is, don't look at the humanities, look at the sciences, they're great. The counter-counter-argument, um, they are, they are, they are maybe as defective or more so than the humanities. Humanities, we can sort of evaluate. You can evaluate Rigoberto Menchu, you can evaluate string theory. And so it's sort of, I don't know, the government analogies, it's like, uh, you know, do you think the, uh, the DMV or the CIA are better run? And it's obviously the DMV is better run since people can see what they're doing. Um, and no, this guy doesn't know that the point of the CIA is that they're literally their job is obfuscation, not just against like other governments or other intelligence gathering oper operatives, but I'd suggest against you and me, their job is obfuscation. It's just that's what they're doing. That's their job. And, uh, and that's probably the political intuition we should have about the sciences. 
versus uh, versus the humanities. The the, the the polemical version of it that I I, I had once was that uh, you know I I think um, I think that uh, it's better for undergraduates to mer ma ma um, to major in the humanities rather than the sciences. Let's set computer science aside as the one thing that sort of works, but everything else. The one thing that the one thing that my, the one thing that I've built my wealth on actually works. The rest of it doesn't work at all. No, you're not going to get a job. You'll be unemployable. Um, whereas in the sciences, you have uh, people who are so deluded as to believe they will be taken care of by the natural goodness of the universe. And it's just, it is just a uh, Malthusian what? competition, nature bared, red and tooth and cloths, you know, 10 grad students in the chemistry lab fighting each other for Bunsen burners and beakers. And if, you know, one person says one wrong word, they get thrown off the overcrowded bus and it's a relief. And wait, and, what, uh, what are you talking about? Cycle what is he talking about now? Now, the question people always ask me is, why? You know, why did this uh, stagnation, why did the shift happen in, in the 70s? And I, I normally try to just avoid the question, say, I don't like answering why questions. They're, they're overdetermined and, you know, there's sort of a lot of different kinds of things one can, one can point to. Um, you know, everything from, uh, you know, uh, extra government regulation to, um, you know, uh, some, of, some of the low-hanging fruit was picked. It's gotten harder to find new things. That's sort of the Tyler Cowen argument. Um, you know, sort of strange ways the culture has changed. You know, the younger people have anxiety attacks and don't want to do anything anymore, and are sort of hiding in the ba in their basements, which is probably maybe not you know um, what? not that com compatible with uh, rapid technological progress. But um, but if but I that's just some people. This is weird. I don't. <clears throat> I'm having a tough time with this because he's just the, the things he's saying. He's like all over the place. He's not really making a point. I don't think. If I had to sort of give a single, again, steel manned idea, the best argument for why, why this has been so slowed for the last 50 years. It hasn't. I think we have to somehow engage with and take, take more seriously. Is that there is something about science and technology that has taken you know, a very dystopian, very destructive turn. In the, um, in the in the 20th century and there are what a, but, but the argument against what he's saying is that it's wrong is that he's incorrect that the phone in your pocket is amazing think about the kinds of microphones we have now versus 50 years ago the kinds of cables we have for those microphones LED lighting think about what a calculator could used to be able to do and then think about your phone Think about what a phone you could get for 150 bucks on eBay does, and then think one of them weird graphing calculators you might have had to use if you're of a certain age it was also around 150 bucks in that time's money. Or, you know, it, it is um, it is not we're not in the 18th century, 19th century, you know, rationalist enlightenment age where um, it seems to be simply um, making everything better in every way all the time. Uh, you know, already the two world wars. Certainly, uh, certainly the nuclear weapons, you know, on some level suggested that uh, the sort of, um, I don't know, the, the, the sort of uh, rhetoric of Rousseau or Voltaire about the natural goodness of man was starting to run, you know, a little bit thin by, by, by the 50s and 60s. And, <clears throat> but and the, by the 50s the, the and well, before uh, the 50s and 60s, there were no cynics. There were no people who didn't believe that in this goodness of man. You'd probably find people in Voltaire's day who was who were like, I don't know about that. <laughs> the kind of uh, 
history, I would tell, it's not perfect, but of, of the last 70, 75 years, is this gradually seeped into society. It sort of manifested in different ways, you, you know. Um, you know, you have a crazy person like Charles Manson. You know, what did he see when he was overdosing, you know, on LSD? You can't really overdose on LSD. You can take too much of it and you, like, trip out and you, you shouldn't. You shouldn't abuse things like LSD, but what does he, what does he mean here? There was going to be a thermonuclear war, and then he decided to become some sort of you know, uh, anti-hero from Dostoevsky and start killing people because everything was what? permitted in this world that was uh, headed towards the apocalypse. And there was something like this that seeped in. Uh, this was what gave the environmental movement so much force in the 70s. It's like, we have to just slow this down. We have to put some brakes on. Uh, and it is it is just the way in which so many of these technologies have this uh, have this dual use component. I always like to argue rhetorically in favor of more nuclear power plants. Uh, I feel that's like why like rhetorically? Arguing. What what if you just believe that? The gold standard is so far outside the Overton window, uh, and I think the the history is that it's hard to avoid the dual use nature of these technologies. You know, uh, uh, and the, the, but the, like that's the, the, this isn't new or interesting. You go back to fire. You could use fire to cook food for your village, or you could use fire to go burn down the village next to yours. Like almost all technology can be used for good things or bad things. He's not saying anything new or interesting here. The turning point with nuclear power was not uh, Chernobyl or Three Mile Island. It was 1975 when India got the bomb. We had transferred the nuclear uh, technology to India. We believed that it was not dual usable. It was, there was a certain way it could be used for only peaceful nuclear power. It easily got weaponized. They got a nuclear bomb. We can't give nuclear power plants to everybody in the world because everybody will have nuclear bombs and that's sort of uh, profoundly unstable and will will blow up the world. And something like Wait, but this, this is so interesting. Oh, we can't go around giving nuclear technology to the rest of the world. Last time I checked, there's only one country that dropped a bomb on, like a nuclear bomb on somebody else. And not only did we do it once, after we like nuked the first place, we were like, ah, we got a second one, and we just dropped a second one on them too. Like, I, I don't know if we're gonna, if the world's gonna decide who should have that shit and who shouldn't. Maybe we should be on the list of people who shouldn't. This, this dual, you know, this dual nature of technology runs through uh, so much of this stuff. There's obviously, you know, um, there's obviously an, an environmental uh, version on the left that uh, that I, I, w- I would say is you know, on some level more powerful than people on the right often like to admit. There is, um, there is um, you know, even, even the kinds of breakthroughs that we, we had in recent years, the mRNA vaccines. And again, the, the sort of the polemical version I have is why can't we have a ticker tape parade for the scientists who invented the mRNA vaccine? Because there's the, the, they built on the work of so many other people that there would be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people you were throwing this ticker tape parade here for i think this guy probably subscribes to this like sort of great man of history like worldview about science and technology how things are like invented by one person and since he doesn't see one person who is doing this amazing like these amazing scientific breakthroughs or these amazing technological breakthroughs since he can't like point to like an einstein of our day or whatever then he thinks that the technology must be slowing down because there's no great man doing the technology. And that's weird, a weird way to think about all this in our incredibly connected society. And, you know, well, else we don't celebrate individuals. That's too dangerous in the 21st century. So you no longer have ticker tape parades for individuals. But, um, but I did th- we have a lot of ticker tape parades for individuals in the past? 
I think like they had ticker tape parades for like the Yankees when the Yankees would win the World Series. They'd have ticker tape parades for like, I don't know if the, if the Olympics went really well or something. Maybe they'd have it for the Olympians. But did they, did they ever just have a ticker tape parade for a dude named Bob? Reason is people are really uncomfortable with the mRNA vaccine because it is, you know, it's very adjacent. Um, it's one toggle switch away from this thing that was going on at the Wuhan lab called gain of function research, which ah, oh, this gain of function crap. I, this guy probably doesn't know anything about it. The Orwellian word for a bioweapons program. And, uh, and then this is, and so it's again, there are, you know, there are these things that, you know, c- could potentially be big breakthroughs. So many of them are adjacent to something that is, that is quite dystopian. I, I used to love science fiction. It is, um, and I think it would be sort of an in- interesting survey course that one could do on, on, you know, trying to understand why it is all so drably dystopian at this point. I mean, there's still, you know, maybe you can do the retro Star Trek stuff from the 60s, but anything that's been published in the last 40 years, it just sort of shows this futuristic world where nothing works. And the question- Like that movie Brazil, it was like the movie, Brazil is like the movie 1984, but absolutely nothing worked. The New World Order was just completely incompetent in that movie Brazil. But this guy's like, does he think that like when Gene Roddenberry was writing the original Star Trek stuff that there wasn't like a whole bunch of dystopian science fiction happening at the same time? Like, does he, I don't think, he must believe that. You have to ask, is this- is this a deep law of nature? Is this a deep truth that if there is more progress, things will just break down? Or is it somehow a reflection of, of, this, uh, of this very dystopian culture we're in where we just can't imagine anything, um, anything getting better? <coughs> now, I think, um, I think that, uh, I think that um, this sort of uh, dystopian um, limit of, uh, of science and technology where, you know, it, it's lost energy because you're just sort of building the machines that will destroy the world, um, has even at this point seeped into the, um, has even seeped into the, uh, into the, um, into the uh, um, computer uh, world where the, you know, the futuristic technology on the computer side is AI, AGI, artificial general intelligence. It's, a, it's always, I always hate the word because sort of this catch-all word that can mean everything and therefore nothing. But, um, but I, you know, I was involved peripherally with uh, some of these sort of East Bay rationalist, futuristic groups. Uh, there was one called the Singularity Institute in the 2000s, and the, the sort of the self-understanding was, you know, building an AGI, it's going to be this, this most the most important technology in the history of the world. We better make sure it's friendly to human beings, and uh, we're going to work on making sure that it's friendly. And then, you know, the, the vibe sort of got a little bit stranger, and I think it was around 2015. No, that's that's really- just called ethics. There's like the study of the te- the study of ethics of technology. That's not strange or weird. Realized that uh, that uh, they weren't really, uh, they they didn't seem to be working that hard on the AGI anymore, and they seemed to be more pessimistic about where it was going to go. And it was kind of a it sort of devolved into sort of a Burning Man, um, Burning Man camp that was sort of um, had gone from sort of transhumanist to luddite um, in in fifteen years. Um, what? And uh, some, something has luddite? gone wrong. Uh, my, um, and it was finally confirmed to me by, by a post from Miri Machine Intelligence Research Institute, the successor organization, in April of this year. Um, and this is, again, these are the people who are, and this is sort of the cutting edge thought leaders of the, of the people who are pushing AGI for the last 20 years. And, and, you know, it was fairly important in the whole Silicon Valley ecosystem. Yeah, but like artificial general intelligence is so far away from where we are right now. We're just like, we're at the machine learning phase for the most part. Title, Miri announces new 
death with dignity strategy. And then the summary, it's obvious at this point that humanity isn't going to solve the alignment problem, i.e. how is AI aligned with humans, or even try very hard, or even go out with much of a fight. Since survival is unattainable, we should shift the focus of our efforts to helping humanity die with slightly more dignity. And, uh, and then, it, anyway, it goes on to talk about why it's only slightly more dignity because people are so pathetic and they've been so lame at dealing with this. Is he, and, is he, is, is the paper that he's citing or the thing he's citing, was it maybe a little tongue in cheek? Of course. I'm, um, I'm thinking it might you know, There's probably a lot you can say that, you know, this was, there was somehow. But I have no idea what he's talking you know, about, so. Deeply in the logic of the whole AI program for, for decades that it was, was potentially going to be very dangerous. If you believe in Darwinism or Machiavellianism, um, there are no purely self-interested actors. And then, you know, if you get a superhuman AGI, you will never know that it's aligned. So th th there was something, you know, there was a superhuman AGI had avoided Whoa, it. Oh man. Like 20 galaxy so. brain. At some point, one day they wake up and the best thing we can do is, um, is, is just, uh, uh, hand out some Kool-Aid a la people's temple to everybody or so something like this. What? And, um, and this is we, weird. Um, this guy's a weirdo. Think, uh, uh, it's okay to be weird, but it's as, it's as troubling just, uh, that he has so much power. Just the kind of thing that happens in a um, in a uh, in a post-COVID mental breakdown world. I, I found another article uh, from Nick Bostrom, who's sort of an Oxford academic, and you know most of these people are sort of I know they're, they're somehow they're interesting because they have nothing to say. They're interesting. Wait, you have nothing to say? It's like the mouth of Sar Sauron. It's it's just sort of complete um, um, sort of cogs in the machine, but they are, they're useful because they tell us exactly where the zeitgeist is in some ways. And, and, um, and this was from 2019, pre-COVID, the vulnerable world hypothesis, and that goes through you know, a whole litany of these different ways where you know, science and technology um, are creating all these dangers for the world, and what do we do about them? And it's the precautionary principle, whatever that means. But then, um, you know- What do you mean whatever that means? The precautionary principle is just the It's that if like there's a like if there's a one percent chance that it's going to be a fucking disaster that like ruins the world or whatever or that gets a lot of people sick or kills a lot of people or destroys the environment, you don't do it. That's the precautionary principle. I know that there's a better definition, but I didn't know we were going to be talking about this tonight. And I am actually not a uh, I'm not omniscient program for achieving stabilization, and I will just read off the four things you need to do to make our world less vulnerable and achieve stabilization in this sort of, you know, we have this exponentiating technology where maybe it's not progressing that quickly, but still progressing quickly enough. There are a lot of uh, dangerous corner cases. You only need to do these four things to, uh, to stabilize the world. Number one, restrict technological development. Number two, ensure that there does not exist a large population of actors representing a wide and recognizably human distribution of motives. So uh, th that's a, that sounds like a somewhat incompatible with the DEI, at least in the. Okay. In the well, but form. this is just one thing you read in 2019 uh, number three, by some Oxford person. Extremely effective Oxford. preventive policing. And number four, establish effective global governance since you can't let, you know, the new world order. Like this person is a person is an internationalist, no I would say. And, uh, and so it is basic, and this is, you know, this is the zeitgeist on the other side. 
it is uh wait no but it's just what one person wrote and i think the little some of it is you as you have uh described it it's stupid especially the like don't let there be a bunch of people who uh, have a bunch of different opinions thing that's stupid how do you do that (laughs) for another century on this planet and therefore you know we need to have you know we need to embrace a one world totalitarian state right now uh he said global governance not one world totalitarian state he's this is how he steel mans his arguments against like against his position the thing he said was like gl- that the person thought there should be some global governance i'm not for a global government i think it would it just exacerbate the problems of the governments that we have now but the people who do think that global governance would be good aren't just like, hey, we should do a global totalitarian state like the conspiracy theorists think. <laughs> you know? like, come on. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so third and fourth counter arguments. The third, okay, just to repeat, the first argument, first counter argument is science is great. It's solving everything. Don't even pay attention to the humanities. Counter argument, no, it's not. Uh, third, what is that the counter argument? Well, science is too dangerous. We have to slow it down. So it's, it's, it's good that it's not so great. We're slowing it down. We need to slow it down even more. And then the, uh, the counter counter argument. Um, and this is, is where I would return to classical liberalism. All the things are bad. There are no good things. Dangerous. We could summarize dangerous this talk with that. I think. Are, uh, it seems, it seems to me that totalitarianism is far more dangerous and, uh, and that uh right but nobody's calling uh, like even uh, even a totalitarian generally doesn't like a totalitarian leader of a country generally thinks they're a leader of the people right (laughs) because they drank their own fucking kool-aid and they're smelling their own farts and they think they're doing what's in the interest of their society they're probably not like if with that heavy amount of control but nobody's like nobody's like let's do a totalitarianism (laughs) except maybe peter Thiel. uh whatever the dangers are in the future uh, we need to never underestimate the danger of, um, you know, one world totalitarian state. Once you get that, uh, hard hard to see what it ends. Uh, you know, there's always, um, you know, I, I, there's always sort of the uh, um, the the frame um, where uh, um, I think it's in First Thessalonians five chapter three, the the political slogan of the Antichrist. Wait, is what? Peace and safety. And. Uh, and I think uh, the political oh, slogan of the Antichrist is in the Bible. I don't know about that. I'm not a Bible scholar, but I don't. I don't know about that. What the fuck is he talking about? And, and you get it when you have sort of a homogenized, one-world totalitarian state. And uh, and what I want to suggest in closing is perhaps we would. Uh, oh, is he going to take questions? That's going to be well great. To be a little bit more scared of the Antichrist and a little bit less scared of Armageddon. Thank you very much. Whoa, look at that. Look at, look, at, look at the talk he was giving to the students. Look at all the students in the audience. Also, is he just in the cafeteria? <laughs> look at all the students. Let's count the students. Uh, one. Found one. All right, that doesn't make any sense on the podcast. Just understand that the video panned out to the crowd. And this, we're, uh, you know, this is like at Stanford, you would think it would be a talk for the students. And, uh, the crowd looks a little more like they're waiting for the early bird special. And I, I write your point that 4% growth is the key to solving all problems about once a week. So <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, look, it's, I agree with everything you say. Wasn't it great that uh, we're going to have this discussion? This is this part. I don't think you, you had quite hard enough. It almost sounds like you were um, 
sympathetic with the uh, dual-use criticism of technology, um, but I think it's it, it's important to bash that if if you were bashing it super hard, and if you weren't bashing it, I get to disagree with you. Wait, um, why do you have to bash it super hard? Like that's like the first of all, he just kind of glossed over it as saying, "Oh, well, you know, these things are dual use," and that's what I think some people think the argument against technology is, and he just kind of glossed over it. He didn't spend a lot of time on it. What's this guy talking about? Um, we could have abundant, essentially free energy right now if the anti-nuclear movement hadn't stopped it in the U.S. It wasn't about India, uh, Pakistan. The region the Nuclear Regulatory Commission hasn't certified a single nuclear power plant since 1975. But that's because nobody wants to pay to build one. <clears throat> I'm not super strong on my opinion on nuclear, and I'm certainly not going to go down that rabbit hole. The cost to build a new nuclear power plant is just astronomical. And the, as capitalists, they should know the capital's flowing elsewhere in the energy sector. In the United States has nothing to do with that. We, we could have breeder reactors now. The danger is much less than the danger of burning coal, even if you include the Three Mile Islands. It isn't, um, uh, it, it isn't because of uh, uh, dual use that every airplane down at the Palo Alto airport uses an engine designed in the 1950s. It's the FAA. Uh, the well, but that's the Palo Alto airport. The Palo Alto airport you could drive, you probably have a Tesla, you could drive your Tesla 30 minutes to the San Francisco International Airport, about 25 minutes to the San Jose International Airport, and you could fly in a plane that doesn't have an engine from the 50s because the, the infrastructure at those airports is such that you have jumbo jets that can land and take off from there. The Palo Alto Airport, the runways are small and it's propeller engines and very small jets only because of the constraints of the airport. And do you think the good people of Palo Alto want you to build an international airport there? Hell no. The reason that, that roads, the high-speed train cost us $100 billion and therefore will never be built, that subways cost $4 billion a mile and never will be built. I, I think you, the, the, the thesis, of Growth comes from technology, but the thesis that it, that we are not growing because government regulation is in the way, I think, is one that we need to take more seriously. Well, I, and I, it's I, a leftist I, cause. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I, I would disagree with the nuclear history where I, I think, you know, I think it was fear of nuclear war that was conflated with nuclear power plants and that turned people against the... What if, what if it's both and, like Chat was saying here, nimbyism? What if it's, oh, yeah, we should have nuclear power. Oh, no, no, not there. No, no, I don't want to see it. No, 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 no. Excuse me. You think Peter Thiel wants to live near a nuclear power plant? Hell no. You think that dude that just asked that question once one in the Palo Alto Hills? Nope. You probably can't put it in the hills anyway. You need water, but. We could, and we could spend a long time going, going through that history. You know, I, 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 I agree with you on all the micro-regulatory stuff. There is, the regulations are stupid. I'd get rid of them. I, I'd, I'd want to. I'd want to roll them back. Would this guy want to live in a house that wasn't built up to code? And then at the same time, there is this, you know, there is this cultural backdrop where, you know, there are some things that have gone wrong. We had, you know, thalidomide, you know, that, that was, you know, that empowered the FDA to, to become far more draconian. I think the FDA, you know, overreacted to the, the thalidomide disaster. But there's something in our society where, where um, some of these risks, you know, were able to be weaponized in, um, in a very drastic way, and I, 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 I think this is this is where the, the the simple naive libertarian arguments they just never carry the day. Even though, yeah, if if, if I could do it every in every single instance, I'd push a button and 
deregulate. And but uh, but it's, why would you do that? But what, wait, 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 no, no, no. Why would you do that? I thought he was saying a little while ago that he didn't like totalitarianism. If he could all of a sudden just be like the, the king of the world or whatever, and he just removed regulations because he thought that they were personally thought they were stupid. That's totalitarianism. Working, you know, and, and the nuclear power thing is a striking one where it's, it's obvious we should be doing this. And it is, it's been completely stuck for 45 years. It's not, it's not like it's a little bit outside the Overton window. It's way, way, way outside the Overton window. Hello. Um, so my name is Adithia. I'm a undergraduate student studying philosophy and political science here at Stanford, right for the review. Um, one of my, so my question is, uh, there's this quote I remember, uh, I think it's from Adorno, uh, Theodore Adorno, or maybe some like anti-colonial scholar commenting on him, uh, something like that. It goes, uh, the only way to gain progress is to stop talking about it. And uh, his argument, essentially, if I recall correctly, is that the more we talk about progress, the more it gives leeway to sort of totalitarian, you know, colonialist structures, imperialist structures that allow you to oppress people who are behind, right? It's like the West is better or more farther in progress than the East or something like that. Um, if we sort of invert that argument, it seems like... The this is a statement. This is like, this is a quest statement, right? This guy's not asking a question. This guy's going up there to be like, I get to make a statement at a place that Peter Thiel is at of progress in many ways motivates the DI officers to progress by, you know, perhaps expanding access of education to minorities. We're learning new things about equity and fair freedom and equal, uh, all these values which we didn't have before, therefore we should impose them on the, you know, the, the sort of loser reactionaries who are convening at a conference, talk about academic freedom. So um, basically my, my question is, why not adopt this sort of motto of we will continue to progress and pursue progress, but we frame it all in a language of return. Um, the same way sort of a lot of I think religious reactionaries like myself and others on, on the Stanford um, are, are trying to trying to do. Uh, so we still want Wait, progress. you just called yourself a religious but reactionary? We don't, we don't sound like we do. Um, I'm somewhat confused by... I mean, Peter... Peter, Peter, your, your, your speech was quite disjointed and all over the place. So like, you're going to have to, you're going to have to like give a homie a little bit, a little bit of leeway there. You're going to have to give our friend a little leeway there to be a little bit more salady after the speech you just gave. Exactly what that means. But I, look, I, I, I would agree with you that, um, there's, there's something about progress that's been hijacked. We still have people who call themselves progressives, um, it's 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 much less clear how you quantify what they are uh, progressing on, um, and then if we if we frame it in terms of well, science. but that's fine. There's also like a kind of house music called progressive house. How how do we define what it's progressing on? Like what what do you mean? Technology per capita GDP. Words have like multiple meanings, Peter. Quantify these things. Um, it seems like we are we're not actually that uh, that progressive on. Um, you know, on a lot of dimensions. And I, th I think one way, and this is sort of just a narrow political framing, but one way to describe the decline away from progress, that, you know, which I think still had this more general sense of not just a political word, but also a science word and also a societal word in the 1930s, 1950s, 60s, um, 
to today is that uh, is the way that we have uh, instead of using the word progress, we use the word change. And the uh, the Obama 2008 campaign, it um, the initial slogan was hope and change, which was um, and then they they changed. It's pretty good marketing after what the fucking ha- what the fuck happened right before Barack Obama, you know, like campaign to. Um, um, the change we need, which if you think about it, is the exact opposite of the first one. The first one was as much change as possible. The second one was as little change as is absolutely necessary. Uh, and it what? was because the word change poll tested very badly because people sensed that when you talk about change, you're not talking about progress. You're, and in fact, most of the time, you, you talk about change when it's non-progressive change, i.e. it is regressive and it's change for the worse. Um, and so, yeah, so I think it is, it is all a very paradoxical. I, I don't think we can... You know, I'm not, I don't think we can simply go back to the past. I don't think we can, um, we can, um, we should completely, uh, I think we should try to reclaim this question of progress. We should be asking, you know, how, where is the growth? How will the next generation do better than the current ones in any of a number of different dimensions of, of, of what counts as better? But by, by no means should the government be in the business of providing the uh, circumstances under which the next generation can be better than the current one. Everybody just needs to get rich. Um, and uh, <laughs> like, come and, on, uh, and I think the, the fact that the left no longer believes in these things means there, there, there should be some opening to, 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 reclaim, to reclaim this ground. But, but Which ground? simply going back to the past can't work because then we're just going to cycle and repeat. I mean, there has to have been something that didn't quite work with classical liberalism. Even if it was a golden age of classical liberalism in the past, you know, we, we end up here today. This is always well, the golden age was classical liberalism. If you looked like Peter Thiel, but the other thing is like during the time he's talking about that, he's like, it was the golden age. He is a gay man. Wouldn't have had a, such a great existence. If he was like open or if somebody found out about it, wouldn't have been great for Peter Thiel. Not at all. This is too polemical, but you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, in the eighties when I was at Stanford, you saw these Marxist professors and the sort of line was, you know, um, true yes, the eighties, the golden, the golden age of Marxist professors. What, what are you talking about? said, and uh, I often wonder that if, if someone someone calls themselves a liberal, a classical liberal today, you know, is it, are they like a Marxist professor from 1985, where you know true liberalism has never been tried? I think it's tried; it hasn't quite worked. We have to be a little bit critical of it to figure out where it went wrong, and then you know how to progress into something that combines the best elements of classical liberalism with uh, with something else for the future. So the person's question didn't make sense, and then Peter Thiel just like word saladed about some weird shit. Um, hi, uh, Hollis Robbins. I'm dean of humanities at University of Utah, and I certainly like the idea that uh, I can tell people to say why humanities. Well, Peter Thiel says you should study humanities. I know that you didn't exactly. But that's not really an art. That's the argument from authority. But I, but I'll use it for my. And she's kind of joking, so we'll we'll let it But I, but I'm interested, and I in listening to you, trying to figure out the admixture of optimism and pessimism. Because on the one hand, the past isn't enough, but we should study it. On the other hand, we, we, have, to be, we have to be looking toward the future, but can't be uh, too, too optimistic, and we have to be realistic. So I suppose I want to ask just a simple question, uh, especially in the midst of this, uh, of this uh, discussion that is, up to this point, been very pessimistic. Is what does success look like? Well, I, I always, I always um, dislike that question a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, I, um, I, 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 I tend to think, um, 
instead like, like why don't you just like i dislike that question a lot and that's a joke like i know what he i mean he he means to say he doesn't have the answer but he's trying to like i don't know he's trying to be cute about it psychology we don't we have too we've overdosed on psychology it's it's just uh we've overdosed on therapy all this all this nonsense we've overdosed on psychology what is he a scientologist uh Optimism. Do you think progress stopped with L. Ron Hubbard? Like, what, just, what is he talking about? You know, I think bad forms of psychotherapy. Um, they are, um, you know, the, they are in some sense, um, at the extreme limit case, they're the same thing. You know, extreme optimism. It's like, okay, you just need to sit back and watch the movie of the future unfold and eat some popcorn. You don't need to do anything. The singularity is near. It's that Ray Kurzweil type thing. That's well, but most of us are just kind of sitting back and enjoying the show because we don't have the kind of influence to pull on the levers of power as individuals. And people haven't, you know, aren't that great at organizing either, especially here in America. Getting together like on a grand scale. People are doing stuff locally. I don't want to, I don't want to disparage people who are organizing locally, but like on a big scale. We don't agree on anything. That's extreme optimism. Extreme pessimism is, um, you know, die with dignity or not very much, but, you know, um, and, uh, and nothing you can do. But that's not what die, the die with dignity movement is like assisted suicide. It's like <clears throat> if people are, you know, have some kind of chronic illness that is painful or debilitating if they, of uh, you know, of sound mind and, you know, after consulting with, with people have decided they would like to end their own life, then they should be able to do it. That's what dying with dignity is. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Because extreme optimism and extreme pessimism, uh, you know, extreme optimism is, um, is denial. Extreme pessimism is acceptance, but they both, they both sum up to sloth. It is, they're both forms of extreme laziness where you're not going to do anything. And so if, if, if you had to, if you had to give, you know, an accurate picture, you know, I'm not sure it's true, but the healthy, the healthy one is so, we're somewhere in between. You know, it we're it is not it is not <laughs> that, that, that was that, that, that was a lot of words to be like. Shouldn't be too optimistic. Shouldn't be too pessimistic. You should kind of kind of take a look and try to evaluate things uh, and be like more, a little more realistic about things if you possibly can. That's a lot of words to say that. Self-destruct. It's not destined that it's going to become a totalitarian one-world state. There is some path in between. It's it's hard. We shouldn't accept totalitarianism or or destruction. You have to fight. You have to work on it. And uh, and that's that's sort of where I always uh, I always get back to some form of individual human agency. Uh, you know the indomitability of the human spirit. And but uh, it, it, it can't be guaranteed. If you're as soon as you make it. Remember the question was what does success look like? Optimistic or too pessimistic. That is, uh, that's, uh, you're lost. Peter, uh, I'm Rick Schwader. I'm a cultural anthropologist and cultural psychologist at the University of Chicago. First of all, thank you for that utterly engaging and provocative talk. Um, everything is the state. Nothing is outside the state. Nothing what? is against the state. Something like that was Mussolini's definition originally of fascism. How far down the, that road do you think we have gone in this society? Um, oh, that's dangerous. As the owner of Palantir, I, uh, I actually recuse myself from having to answer that question. <clears throat> you know, I think it's an unfair question considering what uh, my great company Palantir does and uh, who they do it for. Question. Um, 
I, uh, you know, it, it, I, I never know how to how to think about that. I, I think um, it's 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 way way further than I would like. Um, you know, on, on the other hand, we can have we can have conferences like this. We can we can talk about things. There are a lot of things you get in trouble for, but you can still talk about them in small groups anonymously. Uh, you know, there are parts of the internet that have been taken over by the state, but it, the internet still is in some ways more. The internet is a creation of the state. It was, it was 20 years ago. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think it's, um, it's, it's uncomfortably, there's sort of uncomfortable elements that are, that are that way. Uh, there, there's an uncomfortable entanglement that the U S has with China where, you know, you know, we, where they build all of our stuff. The danger is always, you know, you have to choose your enemies well because you will soon become just like them. And are we going to copy the kind of surveillance totalitarian AI that China has and impose that? Guys, like those those horrific labor conditions that we uh, that are in China that allow us to have cheap uh, electronics or you know low, lower cost electronics. We should actually just have those here so that we don't get entangled with China. And I mean, that's not what he's saying, but like you, you end up there eventually. And I don't think it's good that the people in China have bad labor conditions, but you know, I certainly don't want it happening to my friends and family here in the United States. So it's, it's weird. Like, what's he talking about? Like our, our weird relationship with China or what I forget what he, what the wording he was using. It was just like, yeah, they build our stuff. So there are sort of, I think there are, you know, in all sorts of ways where I think it's, uh, it's it's been pushed too far, but uh, but it's still um, you know I don't know I, I'd still much rather live in the U.S. than China, so all these all these ways we shouldn't be too extreme on it. Peter Blair uh, from Harvard and Hoover. Uh, Peter, when you opened the talk, you said that the antonym of diversity is the university. And one of the things that I've been thinking about during my time at Hoover is the ability of universities to cultivate human potential. Um, for the past 12 years, through the Teal Fellows Program, you've encouraged people to drop out of the university. What are some of the lessons that you've learned through the Teal Fellows Program about how to cultivate human potential, especially given that, in a sense, like the Teal Fellows Program is operating as kind of like the antonym to the university for the cultivation of human potential? Well, I, I'm, always, I'm always hesitant to do too much of a pitch for, for these, these various programs. It was, um, it, um, you know, in, in, in some sense it was a very narrow program. It was, you know, uh, 20, 20 students a year. We've done about 10 classes at this point, uh, a little bit over 200, um, 200 uh, people. Um, you know, it's been, you know, it's been very uneven. But uh, even the median, I think, has been been quite successful. I think about a quarter. They can always go back to college, so it's not. It's an, we never say it's drop out because the colleges always want to. Um, they want to have a high graduation rate, and so um, if you if you stop out, we always use the word stop out. If you stop out, you can always still come back ten years later because you know the universities are so corrupt. They're just they're just trying to you know they're just trying to rig all their numbers. Wait, it's you um, you quit the university and you come back ten years later, and that's because the university is corrupt. What if they're just like, yeah, you can come back and finish your degree. That's that's what they're there for. That's not corrupt. What the fuck? What is? How is that corrupt? That sounds like a cool thing they do. Like if you were accepted and you had to quit, like financial reasons, or maybe you got married and maybe you know you you just quit for whatever reason because you had to go to work because you had a kid or whatever. Then you go back. How, what? How is he even describing corruption there? And so, um. But uh, but but uh, um, 
and it's you know there's there's one sense in which it was a very narrow program you know and you know what should be so shocking about it that you could have 20 people a year in the U.S. who could do better than going to a university or in the world but you know it's mostly mostly Wait, what? program and um, and then um, but then it, you know it obviously triggered all these larger debates about you know our general society where you know there's um, there's sort of uh, too much of the tracks are just not going anywhere. And even though I can't accept that many people in our program, haven't figured out how to scale it, there is this very broad anxiety that, you know, the, the, col the colleges are not teleological. They're not leading to... Teleological? Is he referencing himself there? Or is it just a word I don't know? I, you know? I think Stanford is a little bit healthier than most places because people figure out you're supposed to study computer science. It's a, it's a little bit narrow. But, uh, Stanford is better than other places because the people are, here have figured out that you're supposed to study computer science. What the shit is he talking about? Majors. I think Stanford's biggest thing is their business school, right? Isn't the I I think Stanford's biggest uh, department is their business school. Late into reasonably well-paying jobs outside the universities, computer science and petroleum engineering, um, and and there's and so there is there's some way. That you know, even on the elite university level, there's some way this whole elite formation thing has has badly broken down. It's not all the university's fault, but um, but I, I I wonder whether the sort of extreme egalitarianism of elite universities is a kind of defense mechanism to avoid dealing with the ways in which they're betraying their students. And so, um, if you tell your students, check your privilege. Um, you know, you shouldn't expect to do more than the average person. Um, that's a way for the university. Is that what they're saying? That you shouldn't expect you know, to do more than the average to person? To itself of the responsibility to, um, to see to that its students become, you know, the leading, leading members of our society. So egalitarianism is sort of the excuse for um, a failed elitism. Well, wait, a failed elitism? All right, well, that's the last Peter Thiel video we're going to watch for a while. I just think he's wrong. I think he doesn't, <clears throat> He when he, he's like, oh, the argument against this is this, and it's never that he's just wrong. Like, especially when he talks about the progress of technology, I just think he's wrong. I'm not going to beat that to death. Me and HK did a good job of that during the post game last week. Like, we went over, we spent a lot of time going over the ways in which we have actually made technological progress. All, every time he like he's like here's the argument against me. It's like some one random paper that he read in 2019 was one of his excuse one of his examples, or some philosopher in the fucking 17th century said some shit. And it's like, what are you what are you talking about? <clears throat> I don't think he talks to regular people very often or at all, because like regular people could explain to him just regular people who've thought about these things have arguments against the things he's saying that don't come from some fucking paper. This guy needs to get out there and talk to some regular people. Is that like a touch grass version of like, who do you interact with? Do you interact with anybody who has a mortgage <laughs> who has to pay rent? <clears throat> do you know anybody who has to go to work? Peter, do you know anybody who works at a bar? Do you know anybody who works at a restaurant, Peter? And I don't mean like, you know, the server, at the fancy restaurant you go to, you know, this guy is like kind of detached from reality. And he seems to think that the arguments against the things he's saying are all these 
basically the only arguments being made against what he's saying are by like people he has decided are intellectuals that the arguments against the things he's saying aren't being made by me or you or whatever, because our arguments are like, well, I think you're wrong. And here's my examples. And like, that's not like, that's not like fake smart person shit. And so he seems to only want the arguments against what he's saying to be by other fake smart people. (laughs) I guess. I don't know. He, he referenced someone from the Frankfurt school, but kind of glossed over it. Didn't mention the Frankfurt school and didn't really tell you anything about what that person said they believed or anything they wrote about. It was like all over the place. I don't think this guy is, he's not a great speaker. I don't know if he's like, I don't know how smart he is or whatever. I don't think that there's like really any way for us to like measure that, especially from just a couple videos. But I know he's, I know he sure thinks he's smart. He sure thinks he's been thoughtful. He thinks he knows. He thinks he has the answer. And, um, you know, just be, as we always say around here, be very skeptical of people who, who pitch that at you. And if we ever do it here, we expect you to jump on it, on us for it. Anyway, podcast listeners, I got to let you go. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We watched Peter T. This is two Peter Thiel videos in a row on the podcast feed. I promise we won't do Peter Thiel next week. Um, no show tomorrow night. No uh, cults in the satanic panic. Although I guess the podcast listeners, it'll be Friday by the time they get this anyway. Uh, make sure you check out our other shows though. Go to equiplexmedia.com. Uh, click the support tab. Figure out ways to help us. Uh, this is Boomers. I'm gonna pour a drink and we're gonna we're gonna watch Sam Harris and Bill Maher have a conversation while Bill Maher gets high.
every Saturday is Catterday on Echoplex Media, and not only are we posting fucking cats, we invite all content creators to join our open panel. Visit echoplexmedia.com slash panel to learn how to join. Every third Saturday is Operation Catterday, where we cover this week and last year and play the best clips from the cast of conspiracy characters that Now Space has learned to loathe. The show starts at 8 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com.